the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you back to episode number 98, where today we are finally adding another episode in our collection of astronomy episodes, where today we're talking or continuing into astronomy part four. So just a little astrophysics. A little, a little intro bit of astrophysics. to astrophysics. Interestingly enough, because our class, our third year astrophysics class, the very last course you can take in university relating to astrophysics. Undergraduate. Undergraduate, sorry. Undergrad university is called intro to astrophysics. That's right. So it's still an intro. This is going to be an, an awesome episode of the podcast, especially because this is my specialization. Yes, it is. It's kind of the one thing that I majorly, well, like... I'm not studying it specifically per se, because you're doing like everything that I'm doing related so far, to right? Next year, you're going to be. Yeah, crazy, next year though. will be different. Next year, you're going to be. I will have like an independent research class and also maybe an independent study class in astronomy slash astrophysics. So that's going to be really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all that I have left to do relating to astrophysics. Yeah, but cool. uh, yeah, this year we're taking intro to astrophysics. It's a theoretical course. We're also taking an experimental astrophysics course, which is also really cool. We're going to get to talk about the labs that we will have had done, will have done we'll in have, the future um, when we're done with the class in mm-hmm. about like two months. That will be a really cool episode because we are doing some very interesting labs, yeah. like like literally like determining the radii of planets based on stars you know stellar brightness levels and like that's the kind of stuff that you hear about in a research paper and we're doing it so it's pretty cool yeah very excited about that for sure and uh yeah so this is the last theoretical astrophysics course right so this is kind of gonna be like our culmination of what we've learned Mm -hmm. and it's such a cool class it is is so cool cool because last year we took the two like astrophysics courses that you would take if you're doing like a if you're like going into astrophysics, or even if you're minoring, but yeah, yeah. I was going to say major, but also the, yeah, minor. you also the minor. Um, and those two courses, basically the first half you go through stars and planets. And the second half is galaxies and cosmology. Mm-hmm. And that would take up a full year. But this year we are taking one semester <laughs> of astrophysics and it goes through everything, but mm-hmm. it goes through so much more, math in detail much more more see i think i think i was actually thinking about this and i think every future part that we do to any real like any like real standing episodes series like quantum mechanics or like astronomy for example is all gonna be like similar material but just more detailed because that's really what we're doing and that's like how we're learning it too Actually, I think the next astronomy episode that we do will be more cosmology because we're going to get to Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If we have guests, obviously, that's a different story. Then we can definitely dive into some crazy stuff. But if we're just talking about it ourselves, it's always just going to be like learnings from class or some kind of advancements that we've done. Because again, Mm -hmm. as as you very well described, like this, this semester is, I mean, it basically talks about a lot of stuff that we did last semester, just really honing in on the theory, like really getting in the math the details, the yeah. grimy stuff about what's really happening is kind of like 
what we're learning in this particular course. So it's a little cool. I really enjoy it. I think you do too. So I'm very excited to see at the end of the semester, hopefully we'll get to speak to a professor or two about mm -hmm. in this class. And then we can really dive deep into what we spoke about. Yeah. So before we do get into the episode, we have a comment of the week. Today's comment of the week comes from Mantan Patil. They say, this is my first time watching on YouTube. Just want to say this podcast is really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I Thank think you. it's cool too. Thank you. That's a very nice comment. If you want to be next week's comment of the week, make sure to come on to this YouTube video and leave a comment and you might get picked next week. Um, we do have, we, I, I did want to mention some news because yeah. we did officially hit 400,000 downloads. I was going to say that. Yeah. yeah say awesome. 400,000 downloads. So that was Thank a you. pretty nice milestone. Thank you everyone for continuing to download that episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, road to 500. Mm -hmm. We're close. We're coming. Also, we get a lot of nice DMs on Instagram. Thank you, everybody. Yes. Um, I will say if that. we don't answer, we're sorry. We just have not a lot of time to do like, th like there's just so many like things going on in mm -hmm. our lives right now. Um, we will try. We will try. I know we've gotten like some emails mm -hmm. asking like, how do you solve the time dilation thing around a I black hole? And I'm just like, yeah. I don't like, I'm interested in what you have to say, but also like one, I don't know. And two, I don't have a lot of time to like mm -hmm. really like conjure up an answer, but I will try. We will try to answer everything. Yeah. So for those people who are watching this first day, you might also notice it's another Wednesday episode. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it's, it's another one of those. Yeah. Unfortunately, this yeah. weekend we were literally waking up, working I don't and think, falling asleep. I think, I think, I mean, I, I, I was, I was talking to my mom the other day, like in the, in the 72 hours we were probably working like 60, like countingly, obviously. Like I'm saying- I don't we, know about that. I'm saying, obviously <laughs> exaggerating, but I'm saying like we worked so hard because yeah, it was just was wake to bed. Yeah. We were just writing. We were just writing because we just had stuff, so much stuff to do in these courses. Mm -hmm. So it's just a lot of work sometimes and add the podcast, it gets hard. So we will reply to, we want to reply to everyone. It's just that sometimes it does, it definitely gets hard. Mm -hmm. And- um, Continuing on before we get into the podcast, the NFT winner that we announced that actually technically this the NFT should have gone up because now yeah we're, not everything's late so the next NFT is gonna probably be announced uh, like episode we'll 100 we'll do it tomorrow like we'll we'll announce the winner episode yeah. 100 so that'll be a little cool yeah but for this particular NFT I think this was a really cool NFT because this was like our original logo on the mm -hmm. original background mm -hmm. so it was really cool. And Michael Vagney won this NFT. So mm -hmm. congratulations. We already emailed. I mean, sorry, we already DM'd them. They replied. So we're going to kind of get back to them, give them it or give them soon. And that's yeah. going to be fun. Actually, something cool that we can do for our next giveaway is we can like plan a live episode or like a live mm. on Instagram Maybe. and then give it away live. Oh, that's a nice that idea. Be, that's a nice idea. Cool. Why so not? Like, okay. So like, Make yeah. sure to like stay tuned for when we're gonna do the live because like we're gonna go live maybe be live for like half an no, hour. But we'll and announce then it though. No, we will yeah, announce yeah, yeah. it. We're not gonna just because I know sometimes yeah, we just yeah, go live. Yeah, yeah. Like we won't do that. We'll yeah, announce we'll, it. Like okay, we're gonna do it on this day, and then we'll do it. So that'll be fun. Yeah. Actually, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay, okay everybody, let's go. Okay, first okay, uh, first thing I, I want to start with this. Okay, because I remember myself being in high school applying for astrophysics and. This like this during the whole process, I was thinking astrophysics is really cool. Also, I have no clue what you do in astrophysics. Like 
if you would have asked me at the time, like name like one thing that you study, I could have said like stars, mm-hmm. but like nothing beyond that. I mean, <laughs> like, like I didn't know what a star really was back then. Valid. It's a ball of gas, but what does that really mean, right? How do they work? I don't know. I didn't really know anything about astrophysics. So this is for all the people that were like me. What do you learn in, in an astrophysics course? So here's the outline. And I think it's such a beautiful story that it tells. And same thing goes for, uh, what's that course? I think it's, I think it's, no, it was linear algebra. Linear algebra, the course that I took last semester by, with, with uh, Dr. Wolski, actually, he was on the podcast twice. The story that that course told was beautiful because we started off just looking at um, like determinants and diagonalizability briefly. And then we went back to starting with vector fields and then going all through linear combinations, linear transformations, all these things, and then ending with diagonalizability and uh, whatever that form the canonical form and stuff like that it was such a beautiful story that it told um and the same thing is happening with our astrophysics course and here's what we're doing so essentially in in astrophysics you study things that happen in space there are a lot of things that do happen and so it's a pretty broad situation that that you have to study so you kind of have to pick and choose the things that you group together. And so the first thing we studied this year were the equations of state. Now, this uh, constitutes like hydrostatic equilibrium. For example, if you have like a balloon underwater, is it going to rise? Is it going to fall? If you increase the pressure differential, is it going to rise faster? What happens? Um, what, what, what do the conditions need to be for the ball to just stay static in space? Mm-hmm. You know, you have to deal with, you know, what's the pressure at the top versus the pressure at the bottom. If they're different, then there's going to be a force and things are going to move around. Um, we talk about a lot of different types of pressure because in space, these objects that we call stars are naturally occurring objects. And we just try to explain Mm. how they occur and what are their properties. Turns out that, you know, it's not just one thing. It's, there are different types of stars depending on their initial conditions and the way they evolve also changes depending on how big they were initially, how massive they were initially. Um, different types of pressures become important in different situations. And we're actually going to talk more about that this episode. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we start off by talking about just clumps of gases, how to describe the equations that determine the motion of the gas in space. Also Also like a clean advantage, I think, of like astronomy is that, well, at the end of the day, you're dealing with things in space. So it's not like on Earth where there are multiple things, multiple factors. Now, it's not like you don't have to take factors into consideration in space, but it's much more like you're in an isolated system. Now deal with something. Mm -hmm. And I just like that 
especially like as you were saying like you know you're you're you're, you're kind of picturing things now first of all also like on a much bigger scale because like your whole intuition about you know distances and sizes is kind of just completely skewed right the moment you get into it because like we see some some stars and some some uh some clouds that are like 10 times the mass of the sun like a cloud for example and like what are we like what does that really mean you know like there are very many different parts of you know how complicated it can get and i think that's what's the kind of the beauty of just understanding and kind of appreciating what it is because at the end of the day like yeah like as you said i mean it's a naturally occurring effect it'll happen and the beautiful thing about astrophysics i mean real all physics but mainly in this thing like that it's so it's it's kind of a thing that that takes place regardless of us being there like we like the human race has played like a microscope you know like it's a microscopic thing in the age of the universe and no matter where we are if we are alive or if we're dead like the universe will exist the physics of that will continue mm -hmm. existing and like it's just it's just so beautiful to think about that they have such large you know just what am i trying to say like you know just just lot like i'm just trying to say like they have very uh unimaginable sizes unimaginable mm. quantities mm -hmm. of things that at the end of the day the only thing you can do with it is put it on paper and try to understand mm. it because it's happening there whether or not you see it but if you want to understand it the only way to really do that is do it on paper because of these because of the real vastness of of what we're really studying mm -hmm. right so i think today we're going to talk mostly about like equations of state and also energy inside of stars and maybe a little bit on how gas clouds collapse but before we get into more of the details of that we'll just continue along this this story that astrophysics courses are trying to tell mm -hmm. so after you're able to describe kind of these like large scale collections of particles in space you talk about well what happens when you know, you let gravity take over and you talk about the, the interactions between gravity and pressure and how sometimes if you have a really big gas cloud, gravity is going to contract it. But then if you've seen a little bit of about the physics of gases, um, you know that if you have some type of volume and some type of temperature and the gas compresses, the pressure is going to go up, which is actually going to cause, you know, the particles to move outwards. And so then there's this kind of interplay between gravity and pressure. And when does the gas actually turn into a star? What does it mean for a gas to turn into a star? Right? Actually, I think the definition is that nuclear fusion occurs. As soon as nuclear fusion occurs, and it's then it's a star. Doesn't nuclear fusion also occur in a protostar? Or am I wrong? I don't think so. Because no. when nuclear fusion starts, that's when you, you like hop onto the main sequence. If, if that doesn't happen, then you're just kind of like, there's like convection going on and just like energy transport within the gas. Mm -hmm. But like there's nothing really, there's n nothing's alive, essentially. I guess, yeah, nuclear fusion kind of starts starts the whole process mm -hmm. have we spoken about like nuclear fusion i think we have in depth I think okay. we, have. we can get back to it though because we're actually 
on this step of uh, like in our course right now, we're learning about nuclear fusion and pre-main sequence. Mm. So what it takes for gases and how do you describe gases that have yet to become stars, but are about to. And then after you get to, after you talk about making a star, you get to the main sequence. And the main sequence is the longest stage that a star remains in. How do we know this? Well, you can do a little bit of mathematics about how long it takes to burn hydrogen if a star is made of mostly hydrogen uh, mm. versus how long it takes to burn helium and all those other elements. Or you can look into the sky and see that most of the stars in the sky are on the main sequence. Therefore, it's, they probably are there for a very long time. Um, we have evidence either way. After that, after you're on the main sequence, what happens when you run out of hydrogen? Well, if you have enough mass, you have enough gravity pushing into the core, you could fuse other elements and you, you, know, you could start veering off of the main sequence but continuing on uh, into the red giant phase, the red giant branch. Or if you don't have enough, of, uh, enough fuel, I guess, to keep burning, then you turn into something like a degenerate remnant star which could be um, either a white dwarf or a neutron star, which we might talk about today. <clears throat> Degeneracy is kind of, I mean... Actually, yeah, we will talk with, about yeah, that. We will talk about that. It kind of goes with sure. the equation of state yeah. and like talking about like different levels. But mm -hmm. And what's, what's interesting about all of this is that these, these gases, first of all, can also like that, first of all, make the star. Like before we actually even go into the fusion of it, and talk about the actual making of the star, this this gas can also have very many different properties, right? Like the gas can either be kind of like a classical gas and kind of idealistic. And like in, in physics, what we call that an ideal gas. Now there are specifics or there, there are properties that an ideal gas needs to solve. But usually when we're talking about gases in like clouds, we can make a safe assumption that most of them are ideal, especially like before the whole phase of them actually going nuclear and going, you know, going into the going into the protostar and then the actual stellar phase. We can definitely assume or at least like to a it's, brief extent that they are ideal. It's not really a safe assumption, but I think it's just more for convenience. Yeah, I don't think it's, yeah, it's not actually an ideal gas because there's no perfectly ideal gas in the way. What's the OK, I. I, sh I should be knowing this, but what's like the definition? Not not the not not the mean spacing definition, but like the other definitions. Like it has to have some like some temperature. Like 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 there are certain points that kind of a gas needs to kind of like check off to to be ideal. But like the biggest part of the gas being ideal is very simple. So in quantum mechanics, there is a thing called the de Broglie wavelength. Now, I know I'm mispronouncing that, but I think that's the English pronunciation. So, so the de Broglie wavelength is every, every object has a de Broglie wavelength. And what's the best way to explain a de Broglie wavelength? It's basically like, the quanti it's your, like your quantum mechanical wavelength, right? And every gas, therefore, also in space would also have a de Broglie wavelength. The particles of the gas. The particles of the gas. Is, yeah, exactly. Now, the particles of the gas are also, you know... So, like, not obviously stuck together because they are a gas at the end of the day. So there is quite a large intermolecular spacing between them. 
So the question of is it ideal or is it like a or do we treat it a little quantum mechanically is is the spacing between these particles like the average spacing it's called the mean spacing so is the mean spacing between these particles greater or less than the de Broglie wavelength of these particles of this gas of 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 the particles in the gas so if the mean spacing is much greater than the de Broglie wavelength which is usually the case when we're dealing with you know these stars or at least gases before they turn into them we can assume it's ideal but the moment that's no longer the case and this can happen when the density rises if they're really high dense regions of space then we start treating it a little bit differently and we get a little more into quantum mechanics and the gas is now described via i don't know if it's i mean it's it's described via fermi like like fermions it's kind of like a what's the word that i'm exactly looking for i'm forgetting the exact word that i'm looking for but fermi uh, statistics is that no fermi it, it's not fermi statistics because it's it's like the type of distribution that they follow oh okay it's just it's just the application itself so the ideal gas that we have follows the maxwell distribution and that's kind of basically stating the number of gas particles like if you want to find like the number density of gas particles in this cloud what is the distribution right so the maxwell distribution is kind of also called the speed distribution so it kind of basically is simply a is it it's not normal what is the what is the exact word for it or do we just call it I think maxwell? I think it's like the shape of it is the maxwell it's bell Boltzmann. it's bell but do we just call it's it it's not a bell it's code. not a bell no, it's, it's not. not a bell i'm mistaken then it's well it's it's it looks more like a is it like a Riley distribution? Do you know about that? Yeah, no, I think it looks more like that, but I don't think like is mathematically it it's the same. Riley is more tail heavy, right? Like yeah, right it, skewed. Is. it is. Yeah. Is that Maxwell? I of think course, I Maxwell's yeah. out. Yeah, no, because RMS. Yeah, yeah, no, mm -hmm. Maxwell's are kind of right skewed distributions, and again, they're basically just representing like the like the velocity, like the distribution of the velocities of the different particles, and again, because it's kind of written written in classical mechanics it's treated in one way, which is Maxwell Boltzmann statistics. Now, in the other situation, when we have the Fermi, it's not called Fermi, because that's something else. Fermi is something else, like Fermi energy, for, like that's something else. It, but it kind of goes into like a fermionic state of gas. Like maybe that's a better word to say, because at the end of the day, all these gases are basically fermions, but we're not treating them like that. Because at this level, when this mean spacing is less than the de Broglie wavelength, we have um, the Fermi base or, or, or the fermions basically dictating with Pauli exclusion principle. So we have these particles that are now coming really, really, really close to each other that are now being kind of repelled, not because of general forces, but simply because of quantum mechanical facts. And the, which is the Pauli exclusion principle, and this just is a kind of a kind of a consequence of when we have our gas either too dense or basically it's no longer ideal. And a lot of cases where we deal with non-ideal gases is where we use the again I don't really know what it's called. I'm going to call it fermionic gas. I think that's a word for it, but let's call it a fermionic gas. And it kind of represents a little more quantum mechanical state of the gas. So this is kind of just like a preamble to before we really get into the nuclear fusion of it all and really get into the star of it all. Because when we get there, then it's no longer, well, it can still be described this way, but then we're kind of looking more at the star 
and a little more at the fusion, how it's, you know, energy is really working rather than mainly focusing on the gas. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to finish the whole like tract of like the course. But I guess you've gone on this tangent. I'll just no, say what I, I wanted to say. No, I simply explained the gas that I think... Well, didn't we... We learned this before. Yeah, no. But I, I was just, I was just going... Fusion. It's fine. I'm just, I, 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 I'm just saying that I, I'm, I was saving like something for later, but I'll just say it now because you've already said all this. Um, but basically, what happens when um, your gas is very, very dense and you can no longer treat it as an ideal gas... Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, denser materials or denser gases have higher pressures. Um, but eventually, what happens if you just squeeze a gas so so tight? What happens? Do the atoms just kind of like collect together and it becomes a solid? Kind of. <laughs> Let me be more specific. Um, there is a level at which... Um, specifically in a star, um, where the the pressure being produced, like the radiation pressure and the gas pressure, is just not enough to hold the gravity back. Um, when you stop burning hydrogen, your main source of, of energy within the core of your star, um, when that gets depleted, you no longer have this like supporting pressure. And so you just kind of collapse in, in an, onto itself. And uh, usually, um, if your star is not super massive, if it's massive enough and the gravity is strong enough, then you can go into, like, you can literally explode supernova or go directly into a black hole or become a neutron star and then a black hole. But usually, when you have, like, an average size slash, like, small star... You just become a white dwarf. Mm. And white dwarves are supported by something called uh, electron degeneracy pressure, which is very, very interesting. Um, And it's actually something that we talked about very recently. Um, Electron degeneracy pressure. It's kind of this fake pressure. It's It's not a real pressure per se, but it acts like a pressure, and so we call it electron degeneracy pressure but what is it this is so interesting so it's fermions right an electron is a fermion oh well yes it's a fermion you're making me forget um leptons and fermions are not the same so no so what is an electron no. what am i saying boson yes yes no no no. yes 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 you're right bosons leptons is, and is quarks i'm so sorry yeah. no, no no my brain glitched there are fermions and bosons Fermions, fermions consists of quarks and leptons. So an electron yeah. is a fermion because okay. it supports yeah. poly-exclusion. Bosons is photons. No, no, it has right? to because poly-exclusion. This yeah, is yeah. the whole reason yeah, you're yeah, giving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It has to. So we have we have electrons yes. that are fermions. Yes. And Wolfgang Pauli, a very oh. smart guy, by the way, um, he actually comes up in the in the book, the quantum book by Manjit Kumar. And um, I think a lot of physicists come up in that book. <laughs> no, a lot, a lot do. But I remember um, him talking about Wolfgang Pauli yeah. because he was actually like very smart. He was a very smart student, and he was, um, you know, he was on the scene at the time. He, he was, was on the scene. He, and he dropped a banger. He dropped 
the Pauli, Pauli exclusion, exclusion principle, principle is is a banger. So what is, is the what does the Pauli exclusion principle say? Well, essentially, two um, fermions cannot occupy the same quantum state. Okay, and by quantum state, we mean here's an example, right? If you have a if you have this gas at a temperature of zero Kelvin, um, essentially there's not a lot of kinetic energy, right? Because in a gas, the kinetic energy, the average kinetic energy per particle depends on the temperature. And so if you have zero temperature, um, let's just assume there's no kinetic energy, even though this is not actually true, and I'm about to explain why it's not true. Um, you can kind of picture just these like still, still particles uh, coming together very, very closely. So the quantum state of a particle will be dependent on its position and its spin because we're talking about electrons. Um, so you can't exactly have two electrons sitting on top of each other with the same spin. That would not be allowed. But what happens is that if in a star, in, in, in a white dwarf, the pressure is so immense that it's forcing these electrons to get really, really close together. But this is just a consequence of nature, the Pauli exclusion principle. It's not really something that, or I guess I'm just not smart enough to know why or to what? come up with an explanation for what? For why the Pauli exclusion principle is a thing. Oh, this is chemistry. This yeah. Is but like orbitals. Okay. But like, why though <laughs> like you know what i mean like like why is it a fact of nature that the Pauli exclusion principle works like we could okay, just live so, in a so, universe so that my so my maybe, best understanding is i mean is that every every um every like this is this is what do you call it? oh my god this is grade 12 chemistry coming back to me right now because get because grade 12 chemistry we literally had a chapter on Pauli exclusion principle and describing why it works and the whole reason was Basically, because any, I'm 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 thinking of like the state that an electron can, basically fall into. It's like the SPD. What's that called? Electron configurations. Electron orbitals. configuration. No, no orbitals. But I'm talking about the the configuration of atoms. Okay. So the way that any atom or any body works is that when electrons are you know are attracted to it or get onto it or are starting to orbit it, they fall under certain energy levels. Right, they fall into S, P, D. I don't know if you remember these from chemistry. Like, I actually did this in three, five, six. Oh, interesting. Well, so so these are so these are electron configurations. So these are energy levels. The higher the 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 higher the energy level, the faster the electron is moving. And a basic fundamental fact about any one of these energy levels is that it can take two electrons each of opposite spin, and. The idea is that only these two electrons can fit into any one of these states at any given moment in time. So the problem when there is so much pressure applied by gravity that these other electrons are trying to fill it up, it is simply a fact about electrons taking up energy, just quantum mechanical fact about electrons taking up energy that they just cannot fit into the same energy bracket because it's all taken up. So the only thing to do is to gain more, is, is to go to the higher energy bracket and move faster. And basically the whole pressure, the whole pressure of it, the electron pressure of it, 
comes because of this velocity differential that then kind of creates a pressure gradient towards um, or, or, or not towards, but that kind of creates a pressure gradient because of these different, differently moving electrons. So it's all mainly because of, of a very fundamental fact that these things just cannot be in the same, well, quantum state is just a fancy way of saying it, but like no two electrons can be in the same energy level is kind of like the right. It's kind of like the idea. So, like, my question right. was a little bit more philosophical no, than I, that. No, I think it was. I think it was. But I was just trying to apply, like, the most chemistry, most... Because, like, <laughs> even what you said, it doesn't... Like, it doesn't nobody it doesn't. can answer no, why doesn't. that is a thing. You're right. You know what I it mean? It doesn't really explain why two electro... Like, yeah. why more than two... Like... There probably is a reason. Yeah, there, there definitely is a reason. We but just don't know. What I was trying to get at is that this, like pressure this electron degeneracy pressure is just kind of a property that we can observe and it's just it's just something that we observe and it it arises just like the fact that i'm looking out of my eyes right now you know it's just i don't know why it, it's just it just happens um what was i gonna get at oh yeah i was gonna get at the fact that back to this zero kelvin gas mm. um you have these electrons that because of the temperature, the, this like heat sink that they, that these electrons live in, they are trying to reach the lowest possible energy state. And because of the Pauli exclusion principle, only, you know, a certain amount of them can be in the lowest state. And then automatically some of them have to be in the first excited, second excited state and so on. And so even at zero Kelvin, you do still have motion, mm. even though classically you wouldn't have anything moving at that temperature. Um, when it comes to white dwarfs, what does this mean? This means that theoretically, the amount of material condensed in the, the amount of space that we observe white dwarfs to occupy should not be allowed. It should literally collapse in further onto itself but we still see that they are a thing and so obviously we ask questions and well the explanation that we came up with is oh yeah the material itself cannot condense further and so we have this artificial pressure that arises that holds up the entire star um, so yeah, I kind of think of it as like a glitch in, in reality where it's like, it's like, you know, when you go to the edge of the map and you just like get stuck at the edge, that's kind of what gravity is doing, right? It's contracting, 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 but then it gets to the edge of the map and it just stops there. <laughs> like there's and, a level and there's then a... people are like, wait, why, why is this happening? It's like, well, it's just like fundamentally the particles mm. just cannot go further. So it just stops there and, and then you have white dwarves. Mm. Um, however, there are more dramatic. Yeah, I was just gonna say. <laughs> there are more we dramatic. We can compress fates. it further. We can. Though. What will happen, though, is the question. We will get to that later. Uh, oh, oh, I thought we were getting Because I just wanted okay. to finish. I really wanted to finish this no, go whole, like, whole no, storyline. Like, we're so, we're so, we could talk. Okay, go for I it. I know. Go for but it. this is really quick because it's really interesting. Um, so I was talking about post being sequence stars. You got degenerate stars. We study the stars. What kind of stars are out there? What do they do in their lifetimes? How do they die? How do they get born again? 
But then there are bigger questions to ask. For example, how big is the universe? How do you even go about calculating these things? How old is the universe? How does anybody know how old the universe is? These are all questions that we want to ask. Now, one thing that if you're interested in astrophysics, you should do is search up the distance ladder. Because oh, this isn't is that my presentation? Is it? I think so. <laughs> it is your presentation. I think that's my presentation. No. So oh, shoot. The dist- I don't actually know about this yet. Yeah, I well, still have to study well, on it. This is what the distance ladder is. It's actually, it's just like a scale of distances. And the tools that we use to observe objects at each of these distances. Are these standard candles? Like that kind of stuff? That is one tool that we use oh, at sure. a certain That's cool. distance. That's now, cool. I don't have like the distance ladder memorized, but I do know all of like pretty much most of the tools that we use. Like for example, on very close scales, we use stellar parallax, for example, or not for example, I guess by definition, um, when the earth goes around the sun, it actually has like a difference in position of two astronomical units, which is actually very far. It's around 16 light minutes. Um, this, this change in perspective can actually change the position of stars in the sky. It's like when you look at something and you close one eye and then you open and close the other eye and how that object changes position in your view because your eyes aren't at the same place. Well, what you can actually do using a little bit of trigonometry and uh, a little bit of mathematics, you can you can find out how the angle that it changes on the sky relates to how far it is. However, if something is very extremely, extremely, extremely far, you might notice that if you look at, you know, a tree 100 meters away from you, if you open one eye and close the other and then switch, it's not going to move at all because it's just too far. And so this is where we have to look at other techniques where we, we look at the first rung of the ladder where it's like, okay, we can use stellar parallax to tell how far objects are. But now when the objects stop moving in the sky after six months of the earth going around the sun, we have to go on the next rung and use different techniques. Like, for example, something that's very powerful is a Cepheid variable star where um, we found out that these stars that are pulsating, the pulsation rate of the star is related to the brightness of the star, the intrinsic brightness of the star, which means that if you look in the sky, you see a star pulsating, you're like, oh, that's a Cepheid variable. Now, you see it pulsate at a certain rate and you say this should be this should have a brightness of one unit. However, in your telescope, um, you only see a brightness of 0.3 units. Well, it turns out the further away things are, the less bright they are to your eyes. For example, you know, if someone's on the moon and they hold a flashlight towards the earth, you're probably not going to see that light. But if you hold it right in front of your face, it'll just going to be really bright. Um, so, it's just, you know, the, the factor by which a star dims is related to the distance. There are also other factors. For example, if there's a ginormous cloud of gas in between us and the star, the gas is going to absorb some of the light and the star is going to look dimmer. But that's something we'll just not worry about for now. <laughs> so you can tell. What is that called again? 
that's called uh, absorption. No, 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 no. It was called something like of. We literally found, like, of gas, like a pro, like, and and then we have to like measure the amount. I mean, opacity is kind of. No, like, I think it's like. But it's not really opacity. I think it's called absorption, to be honest. Like the absorption constant. It was. I remember it was lambda. Wasn't it? I mean, this wasn't two two. This was second year. Yeah, second year. When we when we. When it was kind of like, like dust absorption or something. Yeah, like yeah. Yeah, that's what there's I'm a word for it. Though. Yeah, no, there's a word. That. There's a word for uh, d- dust. Yeah, no, dust. Okay, continue on your story then. I'll think about it. Yeah. So now we'll not worry about the dust. We just yeah, worry just, about how if something is very far, it looks less bright. You can do a little bit of math once again to figure out okay, if something looks this much dimmer, then it's this much, this far away compared to what we know how bright it should be. Now, the period of pulsation is directly related to how bright it should be. So you just do the little comparison and you're like, ah, this is how far away that thing is. So now, using Cepheid variables, you can tell how far things are just by the properties of the star itself. And you don't have to deal with actual like motion and what we did for stellar parallax. There are other things. For example, if you want to look very far into the past, you can look at the redshift of something. You can point a telescope at it and you can see the stellar, uh, not the stellar, I guess it could be a galaxy. You can see the spectrum of electromagnetic radiation that it gives off. And it turns out that, okay, the wavelengths are stretched out a lot more than what they should be. And so accounting for that stretched you can tell exactly how far it should be and now at these scales distance is also related to time so if you're looking at like a really old quasar that has a redshift of like what was the redshift like the highest redshift quasar i'm pretty sure i did a presentation on this last year it was like a redshift of like seven which means that it was (laughs) you you could calculate it but i think it was like born in the first like billion years of, of the universe so very, very old, very far away. Um, and then you can look at something like the cosmic microwave background radiation, which has a redshift of, I don't know how much, but we're not really, it, you it's, can't the, measure that it's the, it's the, it's the last thing. Yeah, you can, of course not you can, telescope. of course you can. I mean, like you're not really, it's radio waves. It's yeah, been stretched out by that much. You can tell the redshift. I guess one thousand so, so. percent. But it would be it's such elect- a faint. It would be such a, a faint signal. Like the signal you would receive would be. I mean, like, what do you mean? It's like static. Literally, like the static you receive that's is like what you need. Part all you need is a radiation. signal. Yeah. All okay. you need is. You think people haven't calculated this before? No. What? Of course. Of course. Well, I'm, not, I'm just saying you impossible. can't like do it. Like it's hard to like just look at it. I, like I'm saying, you're saying look you, at a redshifted star. You can see it. Look at the CMB. What do you think they did to calculate? They looked at it. <laughs> That's what they did. <laughs> That's well, literally what they did. Do you think the people who calculated the, the, the redshift of the, of the CMB were any different than you and I? No, they just had a telescope and they looked at it. <laughs> They're just people who did it and they did it. So they, they looked at the CMB, which is actually the last thing that you can see because the cosmic microwave background radiation is actually at the time of recombination which is when photons were allowed to travel. 
before that. It's it basically just, the first, the very first radiation from these photons. Yeah. I guess travel absorbed, wasn't the right yeah, word. No, it's <laughs> kind of being like absorbed because because in the very first moments of recombination, when these particles were recombining, there were a lot of photons that were being absorbed and released and absorbed and released. And the theory is that the CMB is basically a culmination of all of these photons. And it's been traveling. I mean, it, it, it'll travel forever until the last photon. I mean, I well, no, it's because the universe was expanding at the time. And because no, but I'm saying, what is the CMB? Yeah, it's but, just because the absorbed and it's because before photons. it was super dense, um, photons would just be emitted and absorbed exactly. basically immediately. So y you can't really see anything. Like if you were alive back then, you were to just pop up. <laughs> no, I'm saying, if I you, mean, okay, if sure. you were an observer back then, sure. you wouldn't be able to see anywhere in front of you because all of the photons that would enter your eyes like were emitted right in front of your eyes <laughs> so you would just see this opaque glow and apparently it was orange right was that wasn't that the the pbs space time video they said if you were alive back then the whole universe was orange because that was the l wavelength of the light something like that <laughs> something like that, that um but yeah um so right before the right before Anyways, recombination is when photons had enough room to actually escape and just travel in a straight line for a really long time. And then the photons that have been traveling ever since that very moment will now be entering your detector and you detect it and you say, wow, that photon has been traveling for a really long time. Um, exactly like 13.3 billion. Sorry. It's sorry, not so billion. uncertain. Too, though. <laughs> it's very uncertain. But uh, it's been traveling for at least we can say 13 billion. Sure. We can say that much. Sure. <laughs> um, sure. And you know, based on how space time stretches wavelengths, you can tell that oh, I'm getting a radio wave, but it should actually be um, much higher energy, a much higher energy form of electromagnetic radiation. So the difference between those two is related to how old it is. So that's how old we can tell the CMB is and when the universe became mm. transparent. I don't know what this had to do with our story, though. Oh, no, this... Talking about stars, no, no, the, like, the, we're this, on neutron degenerate... Uh, this had to do with, 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 uh, with the distance ladder. Okay, because I kind of want to talk about... Okay, so a little, yeah. a little backtracking. I'm well, back on the actually, story. Last oh, thing, last thing, it, last thing. Um, okay. So we talked about stars in the beginning of the course and we talked about cosmology, the distance ladder. Um... We just ask pretty much the big questions in cosmology. Like we talk about galaxies, we talk about how old it is, how big the universe is. We talk about how it began, the Big Bang, the first few like micro, milli, doubled femtoseconds of what happened in the Big Bang. Um, and then we can ask like philosophical questions, like what happened before the Big Bang. We also talk about the shape of the universe. You might think in your head that it's like a sphere that's going in all directions but you don't really know i mean i mean on a macro level it's basically flat see what is, that, that's something we do study what does it mean for the universe to be flat no right. there is there is but what is there that is, yeah but no, what is there, that there's, there's a whole there's a whole thing i don't i'm not very no. well versed in it <laughs> yeah. but uh, i'm not very well versed um, in it but like i know because like because you because just by monitoring the cmb you can see that the universe is relatively isothermal and that kind of leads you to okay if it's isothermal there are you know 
it's a relatively uniform density. So I think I think I mean there's mm. some reason from there. I don't know where the flatness comes mm. from, but I don't think like that's why you can't yeah. really experience it as like a sphere. I think I think but I don't yeah. know. I don't I don't really know if there's a real. Beyond that, we talk about, you know, is the universe expanding? Is it static? Is it does it have curvature like on the macroscopic scale is it negatively curved, positively curved, not curved at all, things like that. But yeah, that's pretty much the whole story. Hmm. And the, oh, also a cool thing, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but the age of the universe is a super simple calculation. So there's a constant call. Very rough. <laughs> I mean, very, <laughs> that, very that rough. That calculation but, is no, very no, but rough. But I mean, it's experimental. It's super yeah. experimental yeah. because it's based off of the it's based off of the Hubble constant, mm -hmm. which is an exper it's, it's, it's purely an experimental constant. It just so happens that, okay, when you line up these stars and you line up how fast they're moving away from us. More than stars. Uh, well, yeah, sorry. When you line up any object in the universe, with how it's it basically it, it's kilometers per second so speed versus their distance so it's kilometers per second per megaparsec and if you do the math the dimensions are basically just one over a second mm -hmm. so if you flip it hypothetically you basically should get the age of the universe and but actually yeah, you skipped a lot of details no of that. course no but i'm saying but, the but, general idea of the hubble constant is that hey when you plot these velocity versus distance you basically see a straight linear line but okay against anything and you can actually see every single you know observation that's made if you put it on the hubble hubble diagram but you'll also, see a relatively linear thing but also you're talking about graphs and plotting things but like what are you actually talking about so what rehan just explained is that if you measure a star you can measure based on the redshift how far how, or how fast is it moving away from you and then Based on that, you can, you know, use the distance ladder, use like other methods to find out how far it is from you. Well, so it turns out, okay, if you're this far away from us, you move away at this speed. And then if you're even further away from us, you move away at an even faster speed. Yeah, so then shift is what higher. we do is we look further and further out into space and um, we see that um, the redshift is higher, which means you're moving away faster. And so if you were to plot your radial velocity away from us based on how far you are you get this linear relationship where it's like okay if i'm this far away from us then i have to be moving away this fast and this is not a property of the object itself it's a property of space time expanding mm. in between these two objects and so if you imagine space time being in one single spot in the universe and then expanding from there if you were to begin at that point and then expand out to the edge of the universe and we could pinpoint the edge of the universe, um, what we do is we would just place that on our graph where it's like, oh, you're this far, so you should be moving away this quickly, right? We can go all the way to the edge of the universe based on our model. You know, we just extend our linear relationship all the way to the edge of the universe. Well, it's like, okay, I have a relationship um, that tells us one over seconds, right? The, the constant is one over seconds. And so if I want to backtrack from the edge of the universe all the way to the beginning, I can just take this like frequency. It's not really frequency, but you know, this one over seconds frequency and invert it and I get the period, which in this case, the period is just from the beginning to mm -hmm. the present. The um, idea. And it's not actually like a period. It has nothing to do with, oscillation but you would you're just it. making a yeah. comparison between one over seconds and seconds yeah. exactly now see unfortunately because of how you started 
how are we going to take this back to stars? Like, there's so much more to talk about. We don't stars. have to. No, I want to, though. Because we, we didn't finish Electron just, together. Listen, this is, this is our podcast, okay. our rules. Listen, you can listen, go okay, to okay, stars okay, if you okay, want okay. to. Then, le- then, let me, then let me say this. Because I do not think we finished with that at all. And I think we should give it a little more justice. Because we were kind of talking about these extreme scenarios of these stars and this degeneracy scenario and what really happens, you know, when stars kind of go a little haywire, you know, when it's a little more pressure than it should be, a little denser than it should be, and, you know, things that shouldn't happen are happening. So, like, I mean, it's an interesting thing, and that's actually what we're exploring right now because a lot of these pressures, a lot of these, a lot of these ideas are stemming from very powerful foundations which we are learning and that's that's kind of the main idea behind understanding what's the difference right so white dwarfs we understand is supported by electron degeneracy pressure and as i said basically what's happening is that electrons are moving faster and faster and faster as you go up and you have because they're they get they have more energy they're going on these higher energy levels so there comes a point right as we were saying like what if we're what if we're continuing to pressure it i mean uh, to apply pressure to it let's say we continuously add more mass keep the volume the same so we're increasing the density and we're, we're, we're same volume we're just we're just increasing the density what happens is quite interesting because now the electrons also have this insane force that's acting on them such that the highest speeds is almost near the speed of light. So at the at the point where the highest speed of this electron is the speed of light is what we call or yeah what is called the Chandrasekhar limit. So this is kind of the maximum limit for any mm-hmm. white dwarf to basically exist because any higher than this and there's way too much pressure. I mean there's way too much gravitational pressure for the new for the electron degeneracy to hold up i actually didn't know where you were going with that and that was a really good uh, explanation thank you so that's the idea behind what happens at this limit and what goes further is even more interesting because when these electrons because remember electron degeneracy pressure it's this the star is not only made of electrons remember that it's also made of protons right it just happens to be in the nucleus so what's happening is when there's so much pressure that is applied onto this star that the electrons, they're not being forced from their energy levels, but they are being forced into the nucleus. That is an interesting phenomenon because, again, this only happens. Remember, Fermi, I mean, not Fermi, uh, poly exclusion is not violated. Still, everything is good. They're still in their energy levels. It's just that those energy levels are coming closer to the nucleus because of the amount of pressure that you're applying onto it. Because of the more electrons that you're applying. Remember, as I said, when you're increasing the density, you're basically increasing that higher, higher speed. So you're making those energy levels, you know, higher and higher and higher until you reach some maximum. So when there's so much pressure that these energy levels are basically kind of squished into the nucleus, something very interesting happens with the quarks. So as we know, uh, electrons, protons, neutrons are all made up of quarks. And it happens that when you combine a proton and an electron, you make a neutron. So what happens in these very heavily pressurized environments is that the electron degeneracy pressure actually converts to neutron degeneracy pressure. Is that actually what happens? Yeah. 
Because over eighty to ninety percent of the star is then completely neutral. Now you might be wondering neutron because remember it's not fully neutral because neutron stars have makes a very huge, heavy yeah. magnetic fields, so it can't be neutral. But most of them are, and it's simply really? by the com or by the by the by the fusion of these wow. particles. I didn't know that's how neutrons were made. <laughs> Interestingly enough, right? And this basically causes again another degeneracy pressure because same rules apply, right? No two things can take the same state, but this time, it's one neutron. Per quantum state instead of the two electron flips. Because now there's no spin, right? Exactly, exactly. Because it's neutral. So this means it's a lot tight. Actually, I don't know if I don't know why it means it's a lot tighter, but it does mean (laughs) that it's a lot tighter because it can go to very much higher densities. That's why neutron stars are so dense. You know, like a teaspoon of a neutron star is the is the de- is, is the mass Everest. of the is the mass of the Mount Everest exactly. Mm. So like that very nice comparison because it's, it's as small as Manhattan, as heavy as Mount no, teaspoon as heavy as Mount Everest. So the idea behind it is all supported simply by this other so it's the same fact that supported electron degeneracy, just a little bit tighter. And obviously, as as you can see where this is going. Let's put some more pressure onto it. Let's put <laughs> Let's some keep more going. pressure onto it. What's the limit, though? What determines the limit between a neutron star and a black hole? This is known. I have it actually right here. The Tolman-Oppenheimer-Volkov limit. Wow. Yes. So this is about three solar masses. And at really? this limit... Wait, was it? If the mass of a neutron star reaches three solar masses, wow. the speed of the neutron, again, reaches the speed of light. So the top neutron speeds... Oh, wow. Because again, it's always the speed differential. The speed differential is causing right. Everything. So like the Chandrasekhar limit is like the same. Like, it's the same. Wow. It's just that okay. exactly. It's the same. It's just the version of neutron stars. Now, hypothetically, and I was reading this, and I don't know enough about it, so I'm not gonna go into it, but I will just say the word. So if you want, you can search it up. But hypothetically, a neutron star, when it reaches this limit, should turn into a quark star. Now I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. And if you want to search it up, you can. Oh, I know what that is. It's where <clears throat> it's where it's hypothetical though. It has not been yeah, found it's, yet. It's basically the inside of the neutron star becomes so packed. Okay, that's <laughs> to, even more to, to such a crazy level that essentially the boundary between like neutrons just evaporates and you're just left with this plasma of quarks ah, that's actually called like a, quark gluon yeah, plasma yeah, oh yeah, the, is that so the quark just, star? It, just, it just becomes like a soup mm. of quarks that's so just, so that's actually called quark gluon plasma and that is currently a kind of like a state of matter we don't know that for sure though, no 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 okay yeah, no, or, yeah. well we do we know it we know what quark gluon plasma <laughs> is but we don't know that 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 actually happens yeah. well we know that hypothetically it yeah, should yeah yeah we just don't have we have not ex- observed it so what happens in 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 reality is that it turns itself into a black hole Mm. and this is because i'm assuming of the excess mass i think the quark star is maybe like a maybe the reason we don't see it um, again i'm completely inexperienced in this and i'm just completely talking out of my head but maybe it's something to do with like it has to be like a certain range of mass and if it's over that it turns into a black hole and usually when a neutron star becomes a black hole it absorbs too much anyway so it turns into a black hole Mm-hmm. maybe something like that i don't know but yeah so then the last final stage is a black hole which we've already had enough episodes on mm-hmm. but that's basically kind of like just 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 the stage of what's actually happening in these stars in a little more detail 
again, because as, as I said in the very beginning of this episode, I think we've covered a lot of these general topics before in the astronomy episode, but we've never gone into this much detail. And that's just going to be each one. It's just going to be more and more mm -hmm. detailed because that's how we're learning it, right? And I mean, that's hopefully your goal too, right? Just to learn more about the same material. Because like, you just want to uh, know more and more. I think the next um, astronomy episode we do will have to be more like in-depth main sequence. Mm. And you want to do that with a professor though? We could, yeah. We could. We could, 100%. We could. Yeah. I mean, we could do it after this semester, after we finish this particular mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. or we could also do it next semester. Yeah. Anything else we want to talk about? I think I think th that was a nice rundown of like a little bit of stars and what we're learning. Oh, we can actually talk about one last thing. Go for it. We can talk about the free fall time scale. I okay. Think. That's a cool one. Okay. This, is a, cool this one. is a little more on gases now. Yeah, so we're, so we're we should going, have done this more in the going, beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so here we go. Time scales. Time is very cool because mm. uh you know <laughs> <laughs> nice way to start it uh we live we live in time um <laughs> <laughs> so we want to know how gas clouds collapse fall on each other right um so one thing that you could ask is how long does it take for a gas cloud to collapse right one way to answer this question would be to go to brilliant.org and to check out their course on astrophysics. Rehan and I were actually checking out this course uh, before recording this episode, and wow, is it detailed, and wow, do they have amazing, amazing topics. Everything that we've spoken about and more. Oh mm -hmm. my God. We even, on one of the as, uh, as, yeah, astronomy episodes that we recorded in the past, we talked about how... Um, humans in the past uh, were calculating the distance of the moon from the earth or did the distance of the sun and the mass of the sun how did they do radius that? of the earth size of the earth all brilliant that kind of stuff. actually has the like one of the very first um courses in the section where they talk about distances where they actually have an entire course on stellar parallax that we talked about today also standard candles apparent magnitudes all these things they have a course called greek estimates where they teach you how the Greeks measured distances and That's sizes cool. back in the day. Oh my God. That's where really you couldn't cool just Google the answer. You had to go into nature and figure it out for yourself. That must have been a good time. So interesting. Um, they have everything over at Brilliant. Life cycles of stars, cosmology, dark matter. Yeah. yeah Super power. simple. All you need to do if you want to go check it out. You can go in the link in the description below or simply type brilliant.org forward slash MPP for a 20% discount on your premium subscription. Or, you know, just click it and just check out the website and see what you like. Boom. That's basically it. Yep. <laughs> now, time scales. Time scales. <laughs> um, so the very, there are very various ways to estimate time scales. How does a gas cloud collapse in on itself? Okay. Mm. Now, one or, way. Well, that's, that's one time scale. Like, I mean, okay, sure. We're at the free fall time yeah, scale. Because yeah, there are many time, ti time scale as well. What are you measuring? Yeah. In this case, okay. So the free fall time scale is kind of the first time scale that you encounter. And this is the time scale. Actually, it's the smallest time scale mm. that exists when you want to approximate something. And so what you do is you kind of forget all of the laws of physics except for gravity. And you say, I have 
a gas cloud that has this much mass, or you can say like it's this big and the density is this much. How long will it take for the very outside edge of that cloud to reach the middle? And so what you do is you turn off pressure and you turn off uh, intermolecular forces, mm. all of these things, and you just observe how long will it take for this cloud of this density to fall in on itself? Um, so you can do a, some cheeky mathematics and you actually find that it's inversely proportional to the square root of the density. And it actually doesn't depend on anything else. How interesting. Okay. And this is actually, we, this is one of our like problem set questions, um, which we can talk about because the solutions are out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not going to go into detail, but still. So one of our problem sets dealt with, um, so you're inside of the earth and what you do is you throw a ball and like, imagine there's a, there's a tunnel in the earth that goes from one side to the other and you throw a ball very far right and so eventually that ball will go up but then the force of gravity will pull back down onto that ball and you know it will come back through the middle down the other way and then it'll oscillate up and down if you have this like magical tunnel right um it turns out that the period of oscillation is one quarter of the free fall time scale why is that? Well, you can kind of imagine if you were to like <coughs> adjust where you were in time in this oscillation, you could imagine wh when the ball is at the peak of its trajectory and it's temper like instantaneously not moving. You can imagine as if that ball is a particle of gas in a cloud and you turn on time and you turn on gravity and suddenly the effect of gravity starts to pull that ball closer and closer into um, the earth until it reaches the middle um, that actually like, like that section that interval of the oscillation is one quarter because the whole oscillation would be you know from peak to middle to bottom back to middle back to the peak that would be one full uh, oscillation and so if you, if you just take from the peak to the middle, then that's one quarter of it. And we did a little bit of math for our problem set. And we actually found that one quarter of this entire period is the free fall time scale. Very cool. cool. That was a cool, yeah, that was a really cool uh, lesson that we kind of learned from mm -hmm. there. Man, these problem sets that we're doing, super, mm -hmm. super cool. I mean, we don't have to get into that, but that's yeah. definitely super cool. There are other time scales yeah. though. I can just briefly mention, unless you you had one. I mean, mind. there's there's one that we I, I was just reading on that's really cool that we we know about, but we haven't learned in class that I want to talk about. And this is actually much much shorter than the free fall time scale. And this is called the oh. collision time scale. How often, on average, do you see collisions? So this oh. is yeah. <laughs> see because I was just saying I said that the free fall time scale was the shortest time scale. But this is for like collapsing. This like the the no. I'm just talking about particles not, in the gas. Yeah, it's not it's not about collapsing. No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. This has nothing to do with the collapse of the star. This is or the cloud. This is simply because remember, time scales can really be anything. Right. When it, it's just a scale of time. So you're just saying, okay, at when these things, mm. when you're measuring these things, 
This is the magnitude of time that you're looking at. I just when you're measuring this, this is the magnitude of time you're looking at. I wanted to like compare to a different time scale oh, for you collapsing do that stars. But you can you Okay, can I mean I just it's just very brief because it's something mm -hmm. called I think that we've discussed before. Have we discussed the mean free path here before? No. Uh I don't know. I mean this the mean free path time ago. Okay, it's basically okay, just just theoretically, I'm not gonna get theoretically the mean free path is the average distance that a particle will travel until it hits another particle. So if you have a bunch of particles in a gas, the mean free path just tells you, okay, let's say let's say you have a mean free path of one centimeter. So that means basically what you're saying is on average, if let's say a particle bounces off of another one, like in another centimeter, it'll hit another one. Right? And in another one it'll and in a, and a centimeter it'll hit another one. So that's the idea of the mean free path. The collision time scale is simply an idea with, okay, if you know the velocity of these, of these uh, particles, which is given by Maxwellian distribution or fermions, the, remember the name I didn't know about, or whatever type of particle it is, if you know the, the velocity distribution, you can kind of get a good estimate for this. So it kind of gives you a good idea about, okay, on average, how often are you expecting collisions to happen which then gives you a good idea about you know sorts of things like nuclear energy and nuclear fusion so just like a quick reference um to get some numbers in the sun if you shut off the pressure of the sun the time scale or the time that it would take for it to collapse is around 1600 seconds so that's around half an hour and the collisions the collision time scale is on the order of 10 to the negative 10 seconds Right, because that has of course, they, they have of nothing to do with of each course, other. Of course, <laughs> nothing at all. But I'm just bringing it up as a reference point, just to say, okay, these are the values. So just so just think about it, because I mean, it, it it's nice because the sun. Someone can picture the sun. Someone can picture. Okay, turn the pressure. You can, You don't really know what that means, but like turn the pressure off of that object that everyone knows and loves. What'll happen? How long will it take to disappear? That's basically it. Free fall. Mm. Very nice. So yeah, I guess the last thing I just wanted to compare to um, is a different time scale for stars collapsing, and that's the Kevin Helmholtz time scale. Mm. Um, oh, we didn't talk about the virial theorem, but I guess we can keep that for we next time. We talked about the virial theorem, we'll bro. Talk about that next time. Jeez. <laughs> um, so yeah, the Kevin Helmholtz time scale. What this does is what you do is you take the energy of the star. What is the total energy of the star? So you know there are some very good estimations that we have. Um, this is a very big part of astrophysics is learning how to just approximate how big things are, how dense they are with the masses, you know, because there's no real use in finding the specifics, just kind of an approximation is usually good enough. Um, the same reason why we don't count the particles of gas that are in this room and we just talk about the gas as one object, right? We approximate it as, a, as one thing. Um, so yeah, I was talking about energy in a star. So there, there are good ways to approximate the total energy in a star. You can just add up the average kinetic energy per particle to the total gravitational potential energy in that star. And so, and it, like kind of a, the idea of, you know, what is the total gravitational potential energy in that star is you would picture a particle at one point in the star and you'd ask what is the gravitational potential energy of that one particle and then what you would do is you'd just integrate throughout all of those similar particles that have a similar gravitational potential energy and then you just integrate uh, from that point just all throughout 
the the different radii of uh, mm-hmm. of the star and you get a number after that um now this is how much energy the star has so what does it mean for like the star to die I guess this has nothing to do with the free fall time scale. No, not really. Not but really. it has stuff to do with like stars collapsing. I just realized kind of. that now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I'm like, so, this doesn't yeah, really this has have a nothing relation. to do with, yeah, no. But I mean, it, it's, it's similar because cool. in yeah. free fall, you're asking, yeah. turn the pressure off. Yeah. In Kevin Helmholtz, oh. you're saying, turn the nuclear fusion off. Yeah. So that's, so no, actually, you're not doing that. I'll explain why. No. Um, what? Yeah, you're not doing that. Uh, so the Kevin Helmholtz time scale is basically how long a star will burn for. Yeah. Right? But um, this is <laughs> a lot of assumptions, right? Assuming that all of the energy in the star will be burnt. No, that's the nuclear time scale. That's the Kevin Helmholtz. Kevin Helmholtz is if you turn off the nuclear fusion. The nuclear time scale is how long oh, it'll last. Right. With the purely yeah, yeah, but energy. no, but but Kevin Helmholtz is like you turn off nuclear fusion. Yeah. But the energy will be like radiated yes, away yes, in yes, the f- yes, same yes, fashion yes, yes. as like but the time scales are different yeah no they the time scales are different because one is the nuclear energy of the thing one is kind of the gravitational yeah, energy no, right, yeah. of the thing but so. essentially you take the total energy and something we didn't talk about but luminosity luminosity is joules per second flux, isn't it flux it's that's flux. per unit area oh you're right flux is luminosity per unit area so luminosity is how much energy per second is this star losing? Um, so you can calculate that. You can say, okay, the star has this much luminosity. What you do is you say, okay, let's take the total energy of the star and we divide it by the luminosity. So what you're doing is you're assuming that all of the energy in the star will be just radiated away mm-hmm. via electromagnetic radiation. How long will it take for the star to stop burning? Um, and so that's what you do. You do joules divided by joules per second. If you do a little dimensional analysis there, that gives you units of time. Um, and so that's the Kevin Helmholtz time scale. Mm-hmm. How long can the star survive based on just the current total energy of that star? So I think, yeah. So I have, I have numbers of the sun here. So I think that's fun to compare. So as we saw, uh, free fall was 1600 seconds. That's around half an hour. The Kevin Helmholtz time scale is about 10 to the 7 years. Quite a lot longer. Quite a long time. Quite quite a long time. Yeah. And the nuclear time scale that I kind of very, very, very briefly mentioned that we don't really have to get into, but it's, again, it's, it's basically just if you're talking about the total nuclear energy from the, nucle- from the hydrogen burning to helium. Again, Kevin Helmholtz is gravitational. This is kind of nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. So you're asking about, okay, if all of this had to kind of radiate, so at its current luminosity, if it was radiating it away, how long would it take? And for the sun, it's around 10 to the 11 years. Mm-hmm. And we, which is more accurate, right? Which is a more accurate representation, I'm pretty sure. But none of these time scales are 100% right. But I'm pretty sure the nuclear time scale is the closest. To the what? To what? To the actual lifetime of the star. So the sentence right under is the actual lifetime of the sun will be about a tenth of the nuclear time scale wow. because its luminosity will increase greatly when it becomes a red giant. But, okay, I think it's also encompassing the yeah, red giant. Yeah, exactly. It's not but only doing the star. a tenth of that is still closer than 10 to the 7, right? Because yeah, 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 the tenth yeah, of that is 10 to the 10. So the nuclear time scale is more accurate, but yeah. that's not accounting for what happens to the star once it loses like this initial uh, 
I want to say a layer of energy, but that doesn't really make sense. Like once it once it burns all of its hydrogen, you know, something different happens. The star goes through puberty, right? It changes, <laughs> you know? So the nuclear time scale doesn't really take that into account. Yeah, yeah. There again, there are a lot of like discrepancies with these time scales. Again, there's no real like significance of them. It's just if we're dealing with you know, a certain problem will deal with a certain time scale. You know, like you're talking about particles colliding, it'll deal with a collision time scale. You're talking about nuclear fusion in a star, it'll deal with a nuclear right. time scale. So you're just like comparing it to see, okay, if I'm doing something on this order, will I get numbers on a similar time scale as this? Right. Which is kind of like the purpose of just understanding right. it, right? I think that's a good place to stop the episode. I think that's good. Again, we didn't talk about the Virial it's Theorem, fine. which it's is fine. one of the most can, fundamental things, but we cannot do it in the next two minutes. So yep. we have already... Wow. It's, I it's hope late. you enjoyed yeah. this episode on astrophysics. We talked about we a lot it. of stuff. I think I enjoyed this episode, episode quite a lot. This was fun. Yeah. Um, if you did enjoy it yourself, make sure to leave a like button. Make sure to rate this five stars on Spotify yeah. and Apple Podcasts. You can do that also. Um, Why not? Leave a review. I don't know. <laughs> Subscribe <laughs> to us on YouTube uh, and share this with your entire family. Thank you very much. This has been episode number 98 of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we shall see you soon. Bye, guys.